What a joy as always it is to worship the Lord with you on the Lord's Day. Amen. Let me ask God to help us and then we'll look at the word together. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this day. Many of us come into it bruised, battered, spiritually, physically, coming into this day. We feel weak, O oh God. We sing weakly because of our weakness. And we pray that you would fill us with your spirit today to receive your truth with eagerness and that you would give us life afresh today, that we would be invigorated and helped by your word so that we'd be ready for the challenges of the week ahead. Help us to rest in your son today. And we look at your word together, O oh God. We pray that you would help us to rightly understand it by your Holy Spirit. And not just understand it, but to embrace it and to apply it for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to preach about a topic that in some churches is wildly overemphasized. And in other churches, aggressively avoided. And that topic is money. Now, we want to open this sermon with a small disclaimer and it's not so much for our members. Hopefully, by now, our members know us well enough that we are not money-hungry pastors. Our members recognize that this topic comes up very sparingly, and for the most part, we busy ourselves with the gospel, not the budget. And this church also knows that this church is not hurting for money, thank God. And so they know that when we preach about money, it's not it's not because we're feeling desperate to keep these lights on. God has been very, very good to this church through the spirit-led generosity of its members. So this disclaimer is really for first-time guests. We are very glad you're here. We don't want you to walk away with the impression that, oh, here's another church that's all about the bottom line. Here's another church that's about money. No, this church is all about Jesus. And we are happy to talk about money as the Bible talks about it in order to glorify the name of Jesus. So this is not an apology. We're not going to apologize for talking about money when the Bible talks about it a lot. One study counted 2,350 verses, that's roughly 7% of the Bible, talking about money and possessions. God knows our frames. He knows what we're like. And he knows that we need to be taught about money. How it shouldn't be a replacement for God. And how it should be used for his glory. But just know, first time guest, that you have not visited a church today that is a money-centered church. It is a Christ-centered one. And we're glad you're here. So when do we talk about money? Well, we talk about money whenever it comes up in a book that we're preaching through. It's going to come up in Luke a lot. Uh, we'll also talk about money from time to time when things come up. And the occasion that warranted this sermon is that in our last members meeting, we, we proposed several amendments to the Constitution and bylaws of this church family. And what we did is we committed to you that we would preach through those subjects to help you see what we see in the Word in the coming months. So scattered between now and February are going to be three sermons addressing these proposed changes. 
But while it was a topic of conversation that brought about this sermon, this sermon is not a topical one. We're, we're simply going to be walking through a chapter of the Bible together, 2 Corinthians 9, in a sermon that we've entitled, Organized Cheerful Giving. Organized Cheerful Giving. And the main point that we're going to see in this passage is that organized, cheerful giving glorifies God. And we're going to break that down into three observations. Three observations. The first observation is this. Number one, cheerful giving can be organized. Cheerful giving can be organized. Organized is a bad word for some people. You know the phrase that I'm thinking about. I hate organized religion. And you might have that impulse yourself. You may have said that before. The problem with this phrase and this ideology is that the religion of the New Testament is very, very organized. The New Testament, for example, prescribes church offices. You have elders slash pastors and you have deacons. The New Testament tells us to assemble for worship. And it actually gives us instructions on what we should do when we assemble. It even gives us a step-by-step process when we're dealing with sin issues in the church. It demonstrates for us a very strategic plan for missions. And it demands that worship services are orderly. So, if you hate organized religion, then you hate God's religion. There is no being in existence more organized than God himself. So, while cold and heartless religion is bad, which is, I think, what people mean when they say that. Cold and heartless religion is bad. Organized religion is not. God has given us plenty of instructions to keep us organized and ordered so that we may love and serve God rightly. So in verses 1 through 5, we see organized giving. Organized giving. Let's take a look at these verses together. Verse 1. It says this, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. It is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. So what he's saying here is that it would be redundant. It would be unnecessary for Paul to tell the Corinthians about what he's calling the ministry of the saints. And what he's referring to in this context is is an initiative that he has organized with churches all over the known world where they would come together to meet the financial needs, specifically of the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was struggling. They were struggling probably with a combination of famine, which was foretold by the prophet Agabus in Acts, as well as persecution. Think about it. It's the, the resources are limited. And the Christians in Jerusalem are living in a place that's dominated by Jews and Romans who hated them. So they probably were not first in line at the soup kitchen. So the universal church, and what we mean by that is the church everywhere that existed at the time, as led by the apostles, they stepped up to help the church in Jerusalem. So you may not have been aware of that before this sermon, but the Corinthians were already well aware of that. So it would have been superfluous for Paul to write it all out again for them here. But notice, though, what Paul calls it. Verse 1, the ministry of the saints. The ministry of the saints. It is the service or ministry 
of those who have been set apart by God to help others who have also been set apart by God. It's the service of those who have been set apart by God to help others who have also been set apart by God. So let's just make an application here very quickly. Our church's budget, in large part, meets the needs of this local church. That's not a bad thing. This local church has needs. However, we must be very careful to never be merely about this local church. We've got to be very careful that we're not only about this local church. We are not the only saints in this city or in this state or in this country or in this world. We are a small part of the universal church whom God has set apart for himself. We are roughly 200 saints out of millions of saints throughout the world. So we think about, as we think about the ministry of the saints, we shouldn't only have First Baptist Church of the Lakes in view. As the Lord prospers us, we should be financially engaged in serving the church universal. Okay? In verse 2, Paul explains why it would be superfluous for him to talk about it with them, why it would be redundant. Verse 2 begins, For I know your readiness. I know your readiness. The church at Corinth was already prepared to serve the church at Jerusalem, so he didn't need to go in there and make a presentation or a case to them. They were already ready to help. And Paul says of their readiness in verse 2, Of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. So Paul was talking up the church at Corinth to the people of Macedonia, which was a region that included cities like Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi. Paul was going around to such cities, and he boasted about the region of Achaia, which included the city of Corinth. And by the way, that gives us, I think, biblical warrant to be proud of people. It's not sinful pride to be proud of people provided that your pride in them is not about you, right? And that's a good thing, because I, for one, am very proud of this church. And I know that we pastors can't take any credit for that. It's all about the amazing grace of God that you are the believers that you are. So we're happy to boast about you. Paul boasted about them to the people of Macedonia, verse 2, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. They've been ready since last year. So as Paul was going around to the church in Macedonia, raising support for the church at Jerusalem, he was telling them about how the church in Achaia, where Corinth was, had already been working on this since the previous year. They're way ahead of you. They've been working on this since last year. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, which was written roughly a year before 2 Corinthians, Paul had given them instructions on how to collect for this ministry, which, by the way, was that they would collect little by little, on Sundays. The result of Paul's boasting about Corinth was that their, verse 2 says, that their zeal, Corinth's zeal, had stirred up most of the Macedonians. Verse 2. Is that not the case today? Doesn't the generosity of other people encourage us to be generous too? You may not realize this, but you actually might encourage others to greater faithfulness in Christ just by your example. One of the ways that we can stir up one another to love and good works is simply by ourselves being loving and doing good work to others. 
Verse 3 begins with the word, but. But, despite the fact that he was confident in Corinth's knowledge of the situation, Paul decided that he wanted to help them organize even further. So he writes in verse 3, But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. So Paul was sending some brothers, a delegation, fellow believers, down to Corinth to help the Corinthian church organize their giving. And the reason was, verse 3, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter. Could you imagine this? Like, Paul is going around talking up how ready the church at Corinth was to give, only to get a tiny turnout. We can relate to this a little bit. So every year, Women's Resource Medical Center asks us if we would like to run a baby bottle campaign, uh, where, where members like you, they grab a bottle, they fill it with their loose change, a couple bucks, and they ask us to do that, and we say, yes, of course. They ask us, how many bottles should we send? And now we are here at a crossroads. <laughs> how many bottles do we want? So what if they come back to collect after we've given them a number? Let's say we give us 100 bottles. We are implicitly boasting our church is ready to do most of that, at least, at least most of that 100 Let's say they come back to collect and only three out of the hundred bottles were taken. That hasn't happened, by the way. But imagine that that would happen. So that's why we organize it. That's why we put it in the weekly. That's why we say it in the announcements. That's why we put the bottles right in plain sight for you. Because we don't want our boasting about this church to prove empty in that matter. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He wanted to make sure, verse 3, that they would be ready as he said they would be. In other words, Paul wanted to make sure that plenty of money would be collected for the church at Jerusalem by the time he got there. Here's what Paul did not want to happen in verse 4. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So what Paul is trying to avoid is that if some of the Macedonians, to whom he has just been talking up the Achaeans and the Corinthians, if they come with him and they all show up to collect for the church at Jerusalem, and the Corinthians are like, oh, was that today? And then they start checking their, their pockets to see if they have any loose change. Paul was not wanting that to happen. He did not want to be, verse 4 says, humiliated. Now, when he says that, he's not talking about having his pride hurt per se. He just doesn't want to do something that's unbecoming an apostle, a leader of the church. He doesn't want his credibility damaged. He doesn't want people to think, you know, Paul said the Corinthians were ready to give. And that, that stirred us up all the more with zeal. He lied. The Corinthians don't have anything to give. So his reputation as an apostle mattered and he wasn't going to leave it up to them. Not only was his reputation on the line, but so was the reputation of the church at Corinth's. So he says in verse 4, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. Now again, Paul is not appealing to their pridefulness. You shouldn't give because of pride. But he is appealing to their honor. 
He doesn't want the church of Corinth to have a reputation of being stingy. And we shouldn't want that for First Baptist Church of the Lakes either. So for example, even though we couldn't realistically meet the entire financial need of the missionaries that we sent to Southeast Asia, we wanted to make sure that we at least met one-fifth of it, especially because there are members. We couldn't just send them out and say, hey, we'll just throw a couple of bucks your way if we get extra. So what did we do? We organized. We wrote it into our annual budget. We voted in it as a membership so that we could make sure, as a collective, to give what we said we would give. And we know that some of our members give on their own in addition to that. Praise God for you. And by the way, just know that, that this family actually needs more people to step up in that way. And I'm praying with great confidence that more of our members are going to sign up to help them. I actually told the missionary family that I was confident that this church family would step up. So don't humiliate me. <laughs> May God help us organize so that we will not be humiliated. To avoid such humiliation, Paul writes in verse 5 this, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So Paul was going to help them organize to ensure that they would have everything collected and ready by the time that he and perhaps some of the Macedonians arrived. The church at Corinth had promised to collect an offering for the church at Jerusalem a year before, and Paul wanted to help them live up to their promise. He also wanted it to, verse 5 says, be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Here's an example of how we do this. Every year, we take a missions offering around Christmas. So what do we do leading up to that missions offering in Christmas? Well, first, we have made it our custom to take that kind of offering at the same time every year. So no one is surprised by that. But in addition to that, we also announce it a few weeks in advance. That way, for a few weeks, you can pray about it and you can be ready to give as the Lord leads you when we collect it. And in that way, verse 5, it's ready as a willing gift. A willing gift. Now imagine if we just surprised you with missions offerings on random dates without any warning. And we'd say something like, we're taking a missions offering and if you're serious about the gospel, you're going to give today. That would be, verse 5, an exaction. Or as some translations put it, extortion. We may collect money, but it's likely that many people would only give in that situation because they felt like they were being pressured to or forced to. Brothers and sisters, we don't want anyone to, be ever, to ever feel forced to give. And therefore, we organize. We help you with that. We see that play out in our annual budget as well. So every year, the pastors present to the deacons what we think is a biblical budget as we were led by the Holy Spirit. The deacons likewise add salary recommendations as the Spirit leads them. And then we present the budget to you as the church for your agreement or disagreement as you are led. And if you vote a budget in, if you say, yes, that budget works, then like the Corinthians, what you're saying is, we are going to meet that budget. Imagine if we voted the budget in 
and then we did nothing after that, and then simply just counted it up a year later. The pastors and deacons would probably be humiliated (laughs) because they were so confident that the church would collect that much money. You yourselves would be humiliated because you promised to do so in voting the budget in and you fell short. So what do we do to avoid that? We don't wait a whole year, right? We take a general offering every Sunday as an act of worship to the Lord because we recognize that uh, although we have a budget to meet, ultimately what we give is an offering to God. So we do that every week in an organized manner. You're not surprised by it. You know exactly when it's happening. And we don't just randomly say, uh, uh, Pastor Vladimir, pass that plate around one more time, right? We don't do that to you. We have order. We have, it's organized. We also keep you posted on how the church family is doing toward the church's family budget. You know, every week on the bulletin, we published a year-to-date budget and then year-to-date giving. And as you can see, God has blessed us tremendously. His spirit, I'm convinced, has led you to give generously. And as a result, we are way ahead of schedule. So again, you can rest assured, this sermon is not a money grab. We can boast about you to other churches. We can boast about you. And your zeal might even stir up other churches. But in times of difficulty, like in the past, Publishing that week by week has been a good way of staying organized and ensuring that our commitments that we made are met. For example, in years past, we had a building loan. We had a land loan. We had both of those. We were paying that off every month. And so it was a lot more difficult to try to keep up with the budget. And sometimes people looking at the bulletin and saying, oh, wow, we're falling behind, that would convict them to pray and give even more. So that is a parallel of what Paul is doing in sending brothers to Corinth to ensure that the Corinthians would be ready to fulfill their promise. So as we see in verses 1 through 5, cheerful giving can be organized. It can be organized. There are some who think that if they give every week in an organized fashion, then that would be heartless. They much prefer to just give sporadically. But if that were the case... We shouldn't sing every Sunday. We shouldn't pray every Sunday. We shouldn't have the word preached every Sunday. No, the elements of worship are there every week in an organized fashion in order to ensure that we faithfully worship our God and King. Whether your heart is in it or not is something you've got to deal with between you and God. And that's the same when it comes to the weekly offering, benevolence offerings, missions offerings, or anything else. Just because it's organized doesn't mean that it can't be cheerful. So organized giving can be cheerful. As a matter of fact, secondly, number two, organized giving must be cheerful. Organized giving must be cheerful. In verse 6, Paul says, the point is this. So he's about to give the central point for, for why the Corinthians giving, even though it's organized, ought to be a willing gift and not an exaction. The point is this, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So, here we see a principle that's drawn from an analogy of agriculture. Imagine that you're a farmer and you lazily only sow a few seeds. 
you shouldn't be surprised if you don't reap a big harvest. And on the other hand, if a farmer sows many seeds, then they'll likely have a bountiful harvest. So Paul is using this analogy when it comes to financial giving. Now, in response to the prosperity gospel, we might have the impulse to just immediately dismiss this and say, it's not talking about money. But just because prosperity preachers are wrong doesn't mean that we should overcorrect. The Bible does have plenty of scriptures that suggest that God does financially bless those who are financially generous. Prove it, Pastor Ed. Okay, here are a few examples. Proverbs 19.17 says this. Proverbs 19.17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So if you're generous to the poor, God will pay you back for that. Well, you say, will he pay you back spiritually? Okay, Proverbs 28, 27 says, Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. So according to that proverb, those who give to the poor will have their needs taken care of. That's what it means that they will not want. And of those who look away from the poor, they're going to be judged and disciplined by God. And then Malachi 3.10, the issue was... Uh, the people had stopped giving tithes to God. And God says to them in Malachi 3.10, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God invites his people to test him. Test him. Promising to pour down blessings on them, in response to their faithful giving. So, we see a recurring principle in the scriptures that God will bless the generous, and there's no reason to think that in these verses God is simply going to bless them spiritually. God is pleased to bless his people physically also. Now, we have to understand, this is a general principle. God is not bound to physically bless those who are generous. This, among other doctrines, is where the prosperity gospel goes wrong. What they seek to do is manipulate God into blessing them by their being generous and having enough faith. They think that God is bound to bless them physically if they would just do certain things. So they teach that if you sow enough and if you have enough faith, then God will definitely give you health, wealth, and prosperity. And so while we see in Scripture that the principle that God is pleased to bless those who are generous, we also recognize that sometimes the most generous people in the Bible do not get blessed physically all the time. Consider Job. Consider blameless and upright. He regularly offered sacrifices to God, and yet for a season in his life, God allowed him to go through great physical suffering. He lost health, he lost wealth, he even lost family members. Consider Paul, the author of this letter, who's saying this. He was profoundly generous with his time, his resources, and his energy to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. You'd think God would bless someone like that physically. He was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was persecuted, and often he was impoverished. 
Most importantly, consider Jesus, who was the most generous man who ever lived, being fully God and fully man. He healed, he fed, he blessed, he brought to humanity God's very word, yet he too had no place to lay his head. He lived a life of sorrows. He was even crucified. So, we need to acknowledge that being generous doesn't always lead to physical slash financial blessings from the Lord. Having said that, we also don't want to just discard the Bible's teaching that generally speaking, God is pleased to physically bless those who are generous. And we're actually going to see why that's the case in this very passage. We're going to see why that's the case. But for right now, let's just embrace that principle that God is often pleased to bless those who are generous. In light of this principle, Paul goes on to say in verse 7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So here it is. You're wondering, Ed, how much should we give? What is the amount that we should give? Verse 7 tells you, as he has decided in his heart. Heart here doesn't refer simply to your feelings. That's often how we use it in our American context. But in the Bible, heart does include your feelings, but it is the core of your being. It's also your thoughts, your intentions, your desires, your motivations. Everything comes out of your heart. And a Christian should give as much as he wants to give. A Christian should give as much as he wants to give. But you say, but the heart is deceitful. And that's true. But you also have to recognize that it's not true in the same way as it was before you were saved. If you're a Christian, not only do you have forgiveness in Christ, but you also have a new heart. And God the Holy Spirit works on your heart changing your thoughts, your intentions, your desires, and your motivations. And it is from this new heart that we get to decide what to give. In contrast to that, here's how we're not supposed to give. Verse 7, reluctantly or under compulsion. The first one is internal, and the second one is external. Internally, we shouldn't give with reluctance. When the time of offering happens every Sunday, even today, we shouldn't feel like, man, I really don't want to part with this money. But I'm going to, because I think it, I should. God is not pleased by that kind of giving. Externally, we shouldn't be pressured by outside forces to give. We don't publish and post on the screen the amount that everybody has given. The pastors don't even know, and we want to keep it that way right? Uh, in addition to that, we, we don't have ushers just standing there waiting until you put something on the plate. It's for these reasons that Paul was sending the brothers ahead of him to help the Corinthians with their offering for the church at Jerusalem. He didn't want them to be put in a situation where they would give reluctantly because they weren't ready and where he'd have to pressure them to give when he arrived. That's not the way that we should be giving. We should be giving as we have decided in our hearts. And here's why. Verse 7. For God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. This doesn't mean that if you fail to give cheerfully that God no longer loves you. 
thank God. What it means is that God loves it when you give cheerfully. And by the way, earlier what I said, just what you've decided in your heart, one might think, well, if one must give as he has decided in his heart, and my heart is saying zero, then I should give zero. But somebody who gives zero might be cheerful. But he's not a cheerful giver, right? God loves it when you give, and specifically when you give cheerfully. So this freedom that you have in Christ to give as you have decided in your heart does not give you the freedom to give nothing. For God loves a cheerful giver. By the way, we do recognize that that some people prefer to give once a month. That's an amount equivalent to what they would have if they did it in different weeks. We're not saying that you need to give every single week in order to be faithful. God knows your heart. God knows your purposes. But back to the point, God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. God is pleased by somebody who gives cheerfully. He's not pleased by someone who gives reluctantly or under pressure. And that's why we say that giving, even when it's organized, must be cheerful. It must be cheerful in order for it to be pleasing to God. Now, you might think, well, if I'm not cheerful, then I might as well just not give. But that's not the right attitude. That would be like saying, I don't feel love for my spouse, so I might as well get divorced. If your emotions are not in line with your actions, don't abandon the actions, but work on your emotions. Work on your emotions. And your emotions, as Pastor Corey has taught before, your emotions are directly tied to what you think. Okay? So here are some thoughts. If you're struggling with giving with a cheerful heart, here are some thoughts. First, God is the one who gave you the offering to give to him. He gave it to you. When King David beheld all of the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and all the precious stones that were collected for building the temple, David prayed this in 1 Chronicles 29:16. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. The people had given generously, they gave cheerfully. And David acknowledged in prayer that all that the people had given came from God anyway. So you should be able to give cheerfully because everything that you give comes first from him. Secondly, God uses what you give for his glory. Uses for his glory. And we'll unpack that in just a moment. But for right now, acknowledge that as a Christian, you want to see God glorified, yes? And your giving to him expresses the honor that is due to him. And he uses what you give to him for his glory. That should be something that makes you cheerful. And thirdly, if not the highest motivation, your giving is in response to what Christ gave for you. Earlier in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, when Paul first started encouraging them to give generously, here's what he says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, 
so that you by his poverty might become rich. So before the incarnation, the Son of God enjoyed the fullness of divine riches and glory. And for our sake, if you believe in him, he took on human form. He became a servant. And he was born in relative human poverty, but certainly poverty compared to what he had before. And he did that so that by his perfect life and his sacrificial death, sinners like you and me would be forgiven of every sin. And if you believe in him, you recognize that you have become rich. Not physically, necessarily, but spiritually. And it's the spiritual reality of the grace of Jesus Christ that should motivate you to give generously. Christ has been immeasurably generous to us. Therefore, we should be cheerful givers. So this brings us then to the question at hand about our Constitution and bylaws. Within that document lies our membership covenant, the one that we recite at the beginning of every year, reaffirming it. And our membership covenant currently says this. Under the old covenant, it was required that God's people give one-tenth of their income. We believe that under the new covenant, we should do no less. Now, the question about whether Christians should still be tithing, or in other words, giving one-tenth, is a matter of how we understand God's law. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were required to give one-tenth of their agricultural produce, which would include grain, wine, oil, and livestock to support a group of people called the Levites. And the reason this was required is because the Levites were set apart for religious service. God was their inheritance. They had no land. They had cities within other people's lands, but they had no land. They had no agriculture. And so they were completely dependent on the tithe for their sustenance. The Israelites were also to set aside a second tenth to either bring things to the feasts that happened, like Passover, or if it was too much to bring, then they could convert the animals and the grain to money and bring that and buy stuff in Jerusalem as well. So now we're talking about two-tenths. If you want to be faithful to the Old Covenant, you've got you to gotta keep going up, all right? That's two-tenths. There was also a third tithe that was to be set apart for the poor. And so what we're seeing here is that the tithes were specifically related to the ceremonial law, bringing food or money for the sacred feasts, and the civil law, taxation for the purpose of taking care of the Levites and taking care of the poor. The ceremonial law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and that has been abrogated. The civil law was specifically for Israel as a nation, though we can learn very important principles from it. The principles transfer over. For example, the New Testament teaches us that we should physically take care of those who devote their lives to ministry. It does teach us that we should take care of the poor. So the tithes, the tenths, fall under the civil and the ceremonial laws. The moral principle underlying the tithes is love God and love neighbor. That's what you're required to do when you're giving. Love God and love neighbor. The New Testament doesn't require 10% giving. Well, you say, well, there's that, in that passage where Jesus tells the Pharisees that they should have tithed? Yes, he, he did. He did tell the Pharisees that they should have tithed their mint, dill, and cumin, 
without neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But when he said that, he was still speaking to them in the context of the Old Covenant, where Levites, temple service in Israel and their civil law still existed. After that, tithing isn't mentioned ever again. And what we see instead of the word tithe is a spirit-led, generous, and cheerful giving. Christians were selling their possessions to meet each other's needs. They had everything in common. They shared everything that they had. And furthermore, if tithing were still a requirement in the new covenant, then Paul could have simply just told the Corinthians to set aside a tithe for the church at Jerusalem. And he wouldn't have to worry about the amount that was collected because it would, already, it would have already been a fixed amount. Instead, he tells them to give as each has decided in his heart. In 1 Corinthians, again, a perfect place where he could have told them, set aside 10%. He said, put something aside as he may prosper. That's in 1 Corinthians 16.2. So again, he could have just simply instructed them to tithe if it was still a new covenant mandate. So our membership covenant currently has us affirm that we ought to be giving more than 10% under the new covenant. Now let me just say this. That's actually a reasonable conclusion. It is. It's a reasonable conclusion. How much more generous should we be under grace than the Israelites were under law? My own household is moved by that conviction. We use 10% as a reference point. But having said that, it really is a matter of conviction. It's a matter of conscience because the New Testament nowhere requires a specific percentage. So by having that on our membership covenant and then reading it and affirming it every year, we might actually be setting ourselves up to give reluctantly or under compulsion. But God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. And he wants it overflowing with generosity in light of his great generosity that he has shown you in his son. He wants you to give not based on some external standard set by the law. He wants you to give out of love, out of abundance of your heart, which has been replaced by the Father, bought by the Son, and is being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Don't hear this as, you don't need to give more than 10%. Hear this as, you can give whatever you want in response to what God has done for you. That's why giving, even organized giving, must be cheerful. It must be cheerful. It is simply a response to God's abundant grace towards you. So cheerful giving can be organized. Organized giving must be cheerful. And thirdly, organized cheerful giving glorifies God. It glorifies God. Now, we're going to develop this thought over the next eight verses, so just bear with us, but it will go a lot faster than the others. In verse 8, we read this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God is able to make all grace abound to you. God owns everything. 
and he's able to bless you with everything that you need and more. But God has an expressed purpose for it. That's another problem with the prosperity gospel. People are tempted by the prosperity gospel by their greed. They're being led to believe that if you check off certain boxes, you'll be rich. But as we'll see in this passage, God's purpose in blessing Christians financially is not to the end that they will be rich. It's to the end that they would use their riches for good. Verse 8 continues, look at it. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The idea is that if you have what you need, if you have what you need and more, then you can do all sorts of good things for other people. And that's how we should be thinking with regard to our church budget and our family budgets. When the Lord prospers our church, we should be thinking, how can we use this abundance to the glory of God and for the good of others? And when the Lord prospers your household, you should be asking those same questions. Now, we need to have a balanced biblical view on this because Ecclesiastes does condone enjoying the fruits of your labor and receiving them as blessings from the Lord. But they're not contradictory because even that falls under the category of using what God has given you for his glory. Yes, enjoy the blessings that he's given you with thanksgiving in your hearts and do good to others. Do both. Now, how much should you use for others as opposed to what you use for yourself? Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Or as my mother used to tell me, hated this. Do what you think is right. It's because I knew what she meant. It's what she thought was right. (laughs) But she was right. I'm honoring my mother. She was right. But it's clear here that God blesses us financially so that we may abound in every good work. That's why he blesses you financially, so that you may abound in every good work. Now, you might be in a season of your life where you don't feel like God has blessed you financially. Now, there are a couple of of possibilities as to why. First, it could be that God has withheld such blessings because he has greater purposes, just like we described with Job, Paul, and even Christ. The second possibility is that he's disciplining you because you yourself have not been generous. That is, God is withholding physical blessings from you because you have not been blessing others yourself. That is what's implied in those Proverbs and Malachi passage, as well as verse 6 of today's passage. Now, you might need some time for self-reflection on that, but either way, really the answer is give as generously and as cheerfully as you can with what you have in light of what God has done for you in Christ. Jesus commended the poor widow who gave two small copper coins equivalent to a penny because that was everything that she had to give. God is pleased with your cheerful giving, especially if it's out of your poverty. Paul goes on in verse 9 to quote Psalm 112, saying this in verse 9, He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. 
Now, if you go back to Psalm 112, you see that the psalmist is talking about the righteous person. The righteous person fears God, keeps his commandments, and is therefore blessed by God. And the righteous person distributes freely, liberally. He gives to the poor. His righteousness leaves behind a legacy. And in the context of the whole psalm, he is therefore greatly blessed by God. Now here's how Paul applies that verse to the church at Corinth. Look at verse 10. 2 Corinthians 9.10 He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply, multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So whatever you give to other people has been given to you first by God. We've established that. And then he can, he, he's also going to continue to bless you so that you might bless others. He blesses you in order to increase the harvest of not your money, but your righteousness. Your righteousness. He gives you what you need and more in order to obey his commandments of generous love. If God commands you to Galatians 6.10, do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, and if he commands you to, James 1.27, visit orphans and widows in their affliction, will he not provide the means for you to do so? Paul says as much in verse 11. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Now, not everyone can be as generous as the next person in total amount, but every Christian can be generous with what they have. God is going to enrich you as he pleases so that you might be generous in every way. Now you say, this isn't only talking about money. That's fine. But it is definitely talking about money. How do we know? Because Paul is saying this in the context of a financial collection for the church in Jerusalem. So yes, you can be generous with your time and your skills, etc., but money is central to this particular conversation. God is going to enrich you in every way, including financially, to be generous, for you to be generous in every way, including financially. And here's where we start getting to this idea that organized, cheerful giving glorifies God. The end of verse 11 says of this generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The result of God's blessing us to bless others is that people will be grateful to God. He goes on in verse 12, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So the result of this financial initiative that Paul has taken on himself uh, is twofold. First, the needs of the church in Jerusalem would be taken care of. And second, it would overflow in many thanksgivings to God. I've experienced that several times in this church family. So when I first started coming here as a member, the pastors asked us to pray that God would provide the means to pay off the land loan. They never asked for money. They just asked for prayer. Month to month at that point, the church was struggling financially to the point that our pastors had to take pay cuts. And having this land paid off 
would have gone a long way to help the church and to help its pastors. And as we prayed, more and more was given to pay off the land loan, and it was completely paid off by the end of that year, freeing up the church's finances. And do you know what we did? We thanked God for his provision. What about sending off our members to be missionaries in Southeast Asia? You remember if you were here, they had big numbers to meet before we could send them. They had a, a launch fund, and beyond that, they were required to have a steady monthly income rolling in before they could even go. And this church, together with several other churches, banded together, and we raised enough money for them to go. You know what we did then? We thanked God for his provision. Your generosity leads to thanksgivings to God, and thanksgiving to God glorifies him. Verse 13 goes on. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So when the church at Jerusalem would receive Corinth's gift and they would be blown away by how generous Corinth was, they would glorify God. Why would they glorify God and not the church at Corinth? It's because the only reason that the church at Corinth was generous was because of their submission to God. And that submission to God comes from the gospel of Christ that they confess. Christians are generous because of Christ. Not only have all of our resources come from God, but also all of our motivation comes from God. As he has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We mentioned earlier that the family in Southeast Asia needs some more financial help. If and when God provides that through you, if he provides what they need through the generosity of our church and others, we're not going to say, behold our church. We're going to say, behold our God. Our generosity toward one another also binds us together. Look at verse 14. It says of the church at Jerusalem, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. These Christians may have never met before. Oh, but how the church at Jerusalem would long to meet them. They would long to meet the church at Corinth. The church at Jerusalem would see how gracious God had been to the church at Corinth as evidenced by their generous gift, and the church at Jerusalem would feel an affinity toward them. They would long for them and pray for them. What an amazing system that God has designed. Let's trace it back. God loves sinners like you and me, and he gives his only son for us. Jesus lives a life of sinless suffering all the way to dying on the cross for sinners like you and me. And we who believe in him, though we were spiritually poor, have become spiritually rich. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit to continue to mold us into Christ's likeness, imaging his perfections, including his matchless generosity. And out of that transformation, we give generously. And when we give generously, it leads to thanksgivings to God and the unity of his church, 
to the praise of his glory. Thus we can say with Paul in his conclusion of all that he's just said in verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Isn't God so good? Isn't he so wise? He doesn't need our money, but he uses our money for his glory and for our good. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So, cheerful giving can be organized. Organized giving must be cheerful. And organized cheerful giving glorifies God. Here are three rapid-fire ways that we can apply this passage immediately. First, don't scoff at organization. God is pleased to properly order our churches, and he does it for our good. He tells us exactly what to do as a local church, and we should be very grateful for that. Two, examine the cheerfulness in your giving. Examine the cheerfulness in your giving. Are you giving, are you giving reluctantly or under compulsion? Meditate on all that God has done for you. Recognize that all of your giving is from him originally, and it's merely a minuscule response to the massive mercy that he has poured out on you. He gave his only son for you. And amazingly, he gives you even more blessings. What an honor it is for us to give to others. And thirdly, give as much as you want. Put no cap on your generosity. God loves a cheerful giver. And from all of that, God will be glorified. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this passage. It reminds us of your incredible mercy and grace on us, that though it is most amazingly displayed for us in the cross of your Son, we recognize that you give us even more. You've given us your Spirit to walk in faithfulness to you and to love doing so. And not only that, but you take care of our every need, O oh God. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. We, we seek first the kingdom of righteousness and you give us all things. And we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to apply this. Continue to mold us into the likeness of your Son, who is the most perfectly generous one. All for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.